there was a crocodile that was wrapped around a tree and they ended up bringing Steve Irwin over. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is in my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your house. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, or what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. Karen Hinder is an Army and Air Force veteran with over 25 years of service. She is deployed to Timor and the Middle East. Her passion today is assisting military veterans to find employment in their life after service. She launched Working Spirit in 2016, a registered not-for-profit charity. This is our conversation over Zoom. Karen, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Born in Brisbane. Grew up in a pretty normal household on the north side of Brisbane. Pretty active lifestyle growing up. Went to primary school and high school there, uh, university in Queensland. And did you have any military history in the family? Great-grandfather and my grandfather had served in uh, Air Force and Army. Uh, Funny story, my father used to say to my sister and I, you should look at the ADF as a career when you leave school. And we were like, no, we wanted to try something different. And I think just him saying every day, you know, there's so many opportunities you can look at in the ADF. It kind of, I think, sunk in when I was at university. And what were you studying at university? Tourism. <laughs> Something completely different. Well, you ended up sort of traveling the world with your military service. So there's a little <laughs> overlap, I guess. And so you joined the army in 1993. Correct. Tell me more about, I guess, that process. Was it the suggestion of you should consider that just finally sunk in and thought maybe this is was a more stable paycheck than tourism was going to be at that point in time? Or <laughs> Yeah, so I was at university in North Queensland and back then you could get some sort of government assistance if you applied, and but it went off your parents' income and unfortunately I was ineligible to get it. So I kind of had to get a part-time job. I thought, oh, well, I'll just join the Army Reserves whilst I'm at university because it was tax-free and uh, sort of went in and absolutely loved it. And from there, I decided to go in full-time, finish my uh, studies while serving. So you join and your first role is in the Army as an admin clerk. What are your first few years in the Army like for the rest of the 90s? Does it become a sort of just a another regular job where you put on a colourful uniform or what was your sort of attitude towards it? You um, sounded like you enjoyed the time in reserves and did full-time live up to that? Uh, yeah, I absolutely loved it. Uh, my first posting was in Townsville, so I got to go back to Townsville and, yeah, had a really good um, team of people I worked with, had some pretty hardcore supervisors, I'd say, that were old school that put sort of gave you some good hard life lessons. But, um, yeah, overall my first Posting was really good. Um, the only thing that happened during that posting was um, the Black Hawk crash in 96. So I was part of the unit that we lost um, two pilots and a loadmaster and then obviously all the 
the regiment boys. Yeah, that was on the, I think off the top of my head, the 12th of June in uh, 96, 15 SAS and three other personnel lost in a tragic uh, training accident. Um, I spoke with uh, a couple of years ago, Bob Hunter, who was the officer commanding at the time. And uh, I know the sort of the repercussions of that crash was felt uh, so widely for years because it was such a, I mean, a loss of life in training is tragic on its own, but with so many as well. It was a pretty dark day. You go from those experiences and then you're fair to say an Australian-based employee at that point, but then Australia throughout the 90s had started to be sending more soldiers overseas with peacekeeping deployments and things like that. And then you find yourself caught up in that with Timor and headquarters at Interfet. Before we get to actually Timor itself, what was sort of the first inkling that you might be sent overseas? Was that something you put your hand up for? How did that work? No, so I was posted from Townsville to Melbourne, of all places, uh, to our career management agency, just working along there, no inkling whatsoever. And myself and another guy got tapped on the shoulder and and off we get posted back to Brisbane uh, to two different units. And uh, we start the um, process to deploy. And how did you feel at the time about that? I was excited, to be honest, because obviously all the training that you do, you hope for a deployment. And so I was really honoured to be selected, I guess, because I wasn't in a unit that was designated to go. We were taken from one unit and put into another unit. So, yeah, I was yeah honoured to go. And tell me about those uh, first few days when you arrive at Timor and just sort of the, what were some of those early experiences in adjusting to the new environment like? I had a pretty good warrant officer who I had worked with before who sort of helped me settle in and and we did all of the inductions that you do when you go into theatre. And, um, yeah, I, I didn't really have any issues at all, to be honest. I was just a bit of a getting your head around what was required each day because it was a bit different from being back home, what was, you know, things that were due at certain times of the day, driving tasks, you know, nothing really exciting, but um, operations and admin type role. And was this at the beginning of Interfet? No, so I was sort of, I think it was September 99. I, I didn't go over till early January of 2000. And so you're working in headquarters, that's with a General Peter Cosgrove. Yeah. It was, so your role there was to, you know, admin is not a destination. It's a never-ending journey. It's to keep things just yeah. working and working because there's always something new. You've got to keep flowing or the whole sort of back end of the machine kind of stalls and freezes yeah. up and, you know, that needs to keep flowing to allow the soldiers that are on point or, you know, the troopers that are out there doing their work to have that keep functioning. How long were you there for? Just over three months. Um, but during the time we were there, there was a crocodile that was wrapped around a tree that had been there for years. And there was just, you wouldn't even know it was there if you walked past it. There was a lot of overgrown grass and sort of shrubbery. And they ended up bringing Steve Irwin over to <laughs> create a specialised pen for the um to bring the crocodile sort of back and and uh all the locals knew it was there and yeah he came over and with his camera crew and it was a you know big big thing and uh we got to meet him so that was a yeah really cool thing and there was a young artillery guy when they were putting the croc into the pen left his weapon in the pen and as the door shut and then steve went in and, and got went back and got it for him but um yeah that was pretty exciting so when you say it was, it was wrapped, like it lived sort of around this tree, was it? Yeah, it was literally wrapped around a tree, like the tail, it wasn't stretched out, anything. 
and it just sort of lived at this tree for ages and they wanted to finally move it from... Yeah, yeah. Some environmental group came over and we were in the headquarters who so were sort of hearing whispers of this and then, yeah, Steve comes into, into theatre and uh, he actually filmed it, believe it or not. There's a, one of his um, shows and he, he filmed everybody and it was, yeah. You know, the military plans for everything, but it hadn't banked on necessarily a croc. And so no. instead of relying on its own soldiers to do that and, yeah, sent some poor infantry blokes to try and coax it into a pen, we have to deploy Steve Irwin instead. That's, that's so Aussie. So after September 11 passes and things in the Australian Defence Force ramp up, you have a bit of well-deserved long service leave. And then in 2005, you decide to change from Army to Air Force. What inspired that? Believe it or not, I was posted... Um to defence recruiting at the time, and I remember looking at the Air Force uniforms and thinking, "Gee, they just look—they just look like you don't have to change your shirts as much." Uh, something silly, I know, but I felt like I was forever buying poly uniforms for the army to obviously wear at work at DFR. And uh, just chatting to the Air Force girls and thought, "Yeah, I'd really would really like to come across." And then I get posted to 13 Brigade over at the Reserve Unit, um, but as full-time staff, and put in my application and kind of wait. But whilst that was happening, we had an opportunity to go and work on Hamilton Island. So we did that as I, when I was living there. We lived there for six months um, during my long service leave. I got a letter saying that your application to the Air Force has been successful and I went across in January of 05. I was one day I was green and the next day I was blue kind of thing, but <laughs> I got one uniform because that's all they had in my size at the time. You know, rock up to Canberra because that's where I was posted next with um, no idea how to put this Air Force uniform together. I wasn't shown anything. I just had to kind of wing it and and look at manuals. And, um, yeah, it was a bit of a tough transition in the sense that I was very Army and and sort of loved my time in the Army and um, looking forward to my time to go across to the Air Force, but I wasn't really, I didn't really know anything about a wing or how things worked or squadron. Like I knew nothing. I just kind of went in with my army hat on and just tried to figure it all out. Yeah. And do you figure it out in time enough before you're deployed to the Middle East? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Definitely. So your next deployment is, as I've just alluded to, the Middle East. You're with the force level logistics asset. Uh, what does that role involve and where are you sent? So I was in Kuwait. Uh, we were part of an army detachment. It was about 10 Air Force and five Navy with about 164 Army from a Brisbane-based unit. So we went over there and I was doing operations. And what year was this? This was 2008, so end of 2008 until 2009, about mid-March 2009. Keeping in mind a fair chunk of our audience are civilians, I guess, can you give a bit more insight into the day-to-day, what some of those tasks involve, the kind of people you're working with, what you're goals are? Yes, I was working directly with an army lieutenant and um, we were sort of doing operations and stats required. We had a US-based unit from Florida that we were kind of working alongside of. They had a big logistical asset and we were just working alongside of them doing stats every day, doing any driving tasks that was required, pretty much just like moving from the office in Australia to over there, but just doing a bit more paperwork. Slightly warmer office, bit more use of the air conditioner. And so you're supporting troops that are doing stuff on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan? Uh, yeah, so we had force level logistics asset. We had Kuwait, Iraq and Afghanistan. And I got to go over to Kandahar for about a month, halfway through the trip. So that was good to learn a bit more over there and then came back and came home. What's uh, life on base like at these places? Uh, we were on an American base, so... It wasn't really a base. It was, you know, they brought everything in, but you know, they travel with lots of things. So they travel with uh, 
uh, I think what blew us away was it was kind of like when you're at one of those, like the royal show. So there was um, McDonald's, KFC, a hip-hop shop, a Chinese restaurant. It was just like, it was kind of like a sideshow alley really with fast food. Yeah, something we weren't expecting. Their mess was very, you know, American. And you're back in the Middle East in the UAE with the RAAF. When is that and what's the role? So that was 2010. And again, I was back in operations. Um, so that was like shift work. So we, I was always on the like midnight to 6 a.m. shift. Um, so we got in a bit of gym. It was pretty quiet during the night, obviously, but got a bit of gym time in. One of us would go at once and then the next person would go. Yeah, that was pretty, you know, as UAE was like a staging base for everyone coming in and going off to different areas. Uh, but it was busy doing a lot of travel and making sure that people that were coming through were getting picked up and dropped off to where they needed to be at airports or whatever, going to meetings with uh, the officers if we needed to. When did you have your first child? 2013. So just as we had our daughter, we got posted over to Perth when she was about one. And was that the start of a process of you reassessing how much you want to be in full time? What was that journey like for you? Yeah, so I was only working three days a week, but at the time felt like I was doing five days a week. Like it was trying to find that balance of looking after a little tiny human and and uh, doing what was required of the Air Force and my role. So it was, it was you know, like any new mum, it's trying to adapt and figure out what works and what doesn't work. So I was happy, I think, once I got into a routine and figured out where I wanted to be and how I wanted to go with my career, I was sort of like, oh, well, I can seem to can do this. It wasn't until I think we had our son in 2017 that I was like, you know what, this, I don't know if I can do the full time anymore. And then sort of looked at transitioning to part time after maternity leave. And are you still in part time today? Yeah, still do part time. So you have your son in 2017, but the year prior, you had already started to, I think, work in the post service life space where you start working spirit. Can you talk me through what is Working Spirit? What inspired you to kick it off and where is it at today? Yeah, so I was inspired to start Working Spirit after I was selected onto Prince Charles's Lead Your Own Business Program in 2016. You did sort of pre-course work and then you went to RMIT in Melbourne for a week, learned from, you know, great business minds and then came back to your home lock and then you had a year up to, I think it was a year to sort of work on was Cert 4 in business, small business management we got. But the course was really inspiring and met a lot of current serving also veterans that were wanting to start a, their own business. And I think for me, I was like, well, what do I want to do? And I'd worked with a exceptional lady at Headquarters Jock in Canberra she left medically discharged and just saw her go through a lot of ups and downs. And I thought, you know, with my recruiting background and my admin background and my ops background, what is something that I could do to give back? Because my family has always been giving back since we were kids. We were always volunteering everywhere. My parents got us doing that. My parents volunteered. So we saw all that growing up. And um, I thought, you know what, I'm going to start a charity. <laughs> I had no money, nothing. And I went back to work and I thought, rightio, I'm going to put my name down to go to the transition seminar down in Rockingham. I had a banner made up and I was really excited, still in at this time. And uh, everyone comes out in break number one and just goes straight for coffee because they just, you know, listen to a lot of lectures in the morning. And uh, this young Navy guy comes up and says to me, you know, I'm getting med discharge in the January of the next year. I'm looking for a job. And I thought, right, right. Okay. So I went back to Pierce, Rafe's Pierce and spoke to Air Flight 
who were maintaining our PC-9 aircraft at the time and mentioned I've got this young Navy guy, 21 years service, electronics technician, wanting to maybe do some work experience. So they agreed and he kind of did that over the December period, I think, because this was in November of 16 when the transition seminar was on. And in the January, he rang me and said, they've offered me a job. So that was, I was kind of hooked then. I was like, right, this is one person I've helped. Like One taste of that success and that you yeah. know, good selfless work that you've done. You've really impacted a person's life there. And then you get a taste for that and go, let's keep doing that. Yeah, pretty much. So still was doing it while serving. Then obviously fall pregnant with my second child and um, I had a very high risk pregnancy. So kind of reevaluated quite a few things then. And then when he was born, I was using all my leave and then just working on working spirit slowly. When I transitioned out in middle August of 18 full-time, I decided to do the charity full-time. What's that involved? I mean, it's a registered not-for-profit charity. Is it been largely a one-woman show? How's that worked? Yeah, it was pretty much myself for the first four years. So I was doing events, social media, jobs, everything. I was like the one-man band. And then we were fortunate enough to get a staff member in, which was great. And we've had a couple more staff members in over the years. And now we've got a really good team, place veterans into employment, simple as that, really. And we work with a lot of companies that are really committed to hiring veterans. I guess the negative thing about a charity is you're always looking for funding. We've been very fortunate to be given the ANZAC grant in WA, which has helped us grow, host events and things like that. Yeah, I think we've placed... 250 veterans into employment since we started at the moment for this year we're at 54 to have helped over 250 people in that space of time and just 54 in what six months last year that's fantastic when you do this kind of work is that finding businesses that are yes sort of veteran friendly or are you helping veterans with resumes or introductions or like what does some of that work look like when we started it was just doing events and like networking bringing veterans along and having business leaders come from top tier companies or small businesses to chat to veterans about their options because we do a one-day transition seminar but some people still feel really lost of where they want to go and what they want to do and some people don't want to do anything that they did in the adf um, they want to do something completely new yeah it is about speaking the narrative to companies and saying how good a veteran is to get hired and like what they can bring to their business or their large company. Yeah. So we do uh, networking events, career summits. We've just had our eighth or ninth in March. And then we do a networking event in August when networking is not taught as a campus course in the ADF. And then, yeah, we developed uh, the transition employment portal, which is a bit of a game changer. So I like to say Tinder for employment without the date, you get a job interview. The portal is designed that the veterans tell us what they want. And then the companies can go in click on particular field, like can type in, you know, trades and services, admin, and all the veterans that have ticked these fields will show up. And it shows up as the first three letters of their surname and the last three numbers of their military ID. And then they can connect with the veteran. And then if the veteran connects, they can start then the conversation for employment. Because to be honest, you know, resumes were coming in, resumes were going out. We were like the middleman as the charity, but we wanted to come up with a, a better approach where the veterans were in control and the companies were also in control. And it's been working really, really well. Um, we're really excited about it. And now we've got like a sponsorship platform for companies to come on board for 12 months at a time and um, hire veterans. Because the angle of the job where the veterans come to you, that's obvious, but I can imagine there's a lot of that back-end work just to solicit these companies to find companies that and persuade them you should be employing veterans and bringing them on board into the system whether it's your new portal or just to the networking functions 
back in the day, there's going to be a lot of man hours just to make that happen. Yeah, there is. There's a lot of back end, but I think any veterans we can help, we're really excited to help any veteran that we can. We work really well with the dives team here in Perth, the Defence Industry Veteran Employment Scheme through South Metro TAFE, who um, do their resumes and career coaching. So that's been really, really good. And again, they have some opportunities part of the WA government for courses as well for veterans. It is a lot of man hours, but I literally love what I do. I love placing a veteran into employment and I've loved the team that's helped us in the past and the current team now. Yeah. And I've got a really good board, obviously, Ryan, that, you know, um, the board's fantastic. They've been really giving me some guidance because I feel like I've got a military brain, but I don't have a corporate brain and I'm learning a lot from our board members. Well, Karen, it's great. You have such passion for this really selfless, wonderful work that you're doing. If anyone's listening and they're a veteran that want to get involved in this program or they're a part of a company that thinks we can help, we can be a part of that solution, or maybe someone with some spare dollars to help with funding. How do they get in touch? What's your website? All that. Yeah, they can reach out to us at www.workingspirit.org.au. We've got all of our videos on the Transition Employment Portal on there. We've got a lot of information. They can email us to inquiries at workingspirit.org.au or give us a call um, on 1300 219 443 and we'd love to have a chat. Well, Karen, you've been in service, whether it's in uniform or this new form of service that you're doing today for so long and it's uh, such selfless work. Thank you so much for all that you did to keep the army running when you were in uniform full-time and for all you're doing to help people navigate a new life today and that life after service challenge. So thank you for sharing and for speaking with me today. No, my pleasure. I'm Alex Lloyd and you've been listening to Life on the Line. I encourage you to look up Working Spirit to see if there's any way that you can get involved. For my conversations with the two SAS veterans that were mentioned in this chat, first go back to season four and listen to number 101, Bob Hunter. Unfortunately, we had two choppers come together and crash. The art of leadership in these things is, okay, so what do you do now when everything has gone to hell in a handbasket? Then go to season six and listen to number 128, Ryan Wilson. Unbeknownst to us, there was a Talib hiding behind a big rock down this creek line that we were sort of clearing, waiting for us in ambush. If you're interested in the broader topic of transition from military to civilian life, we did a documentary miniseries on this on YouTube. Look up Life After Service on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash lifeonthelinepodcast. My colleague Thomas Kay directed six fantastic episodes exploring this topic in depth, featuring interviews with a variety of perspectives. All around the country, Australians sign up and put their lives on the line to do their part protect the nation and its interests. But when the day comes to hang up their uniform for the last time, it's the end of one chapter and the beginning of the next. In this series, we talk to some of our veterans about their life after service. You can follow this show at Life on the Line podcast on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube, at LOTL pod on Twitter and at LinkedIn on Thistle Productions. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thank you for listening. And lest we forget. <laughs>